Hello everybody and welcome to the Going Up Cast for this very special episode of the Going Up Cast. We will read one of Lovecraft's most famous books, most famousest books. We talk about a new show on Disney Plus. I talk about the World of Warcraft pre-patch experience. A brand new amazing album has dropped. And we talk about the West Wing special on HBO Max. I know I usually like to save all that descriptive stuff for this half of it. Um, but I'm just going to quickly tell you that we read Call of Cthulhu this week. That is why it is almost two hours long. Because Call of Cthulhu is quite a story to tell. Uh, we also talk about Ninja Sex Partner's latest album, The Prophecy. I give it a glowing recommendation. We talk about the HBO Max special West Wing reunion. Uh, which encourages people to vote. And then we talk about the right stuff on Disney+, Plus, which it tells the story of the Mercury 7 or the American astronauts who journeyed to space for the first time. I am doing okay on my end. I'm about to go get a haircut here in real time, uh, which will be which will be fun and exciting. I just finished reading Call of Cthulhu about 10 minutes ago, and I am so happy I don't have to lift this fucking book up anymore because uh, it's heavy. It's a heavy, heavy book. I don't know what we're going to do in terms of horror for actual week of Halloween, um, but I'm sure we'll come up with something, you know? I want it to be something actually scary, so I might start proofreading some stuff and scanning the, the fucking obituaries or something. I don't know. I want to I be fucking scared. That's what I want. I want to find books that are genuinely frightening, so I'm going to find something like that. Uh, but in the meantime, let's dive into this week's episode, complete with a healthy dash of ultimate cosmic horror. Brand new show on Disney Plus. This one's called The Right Stuff, which is inspired by the same book that inspired the 1983 movie The Right Stuff. If you don't know what that is, um, it is the story of the Mercury 7 astronaut team uh, consisting of John Glenn and Alan Shepard, among five others, who were among the first people to go into space. They were the first, um, first Americans into space that won us. The Space War, um, I'm pretty sure, is, is how that went down. Um, it's it's uh, kind of uh, it's a scripted series, so it's not like a documentary. And you've got actors playing all of these um, you know, famous astronauts, all of whom are dead. I, I googled it as I was watching it. They're all dead. Um, not that that particularly matters. So far, it's pretty good. Um, I've started a lot of shows lately that I didn't feel were were particularly interesting or intriguing, um, but there's something about the the realism and the 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 struggle of space adventure that always hooks me. You know, it's like watching Apollo 13. You just can't help but getting getting into it. Like there's a scene in Apollo 13 where they're just doing math and they're all doing math together. Because they don't have, like, computers to do it for them. So they have to do it in their heads. And there's, like, a line of, like, 13 people all trying to calculate something. And it's, like, the most interesting scene of the movie. I've never been so excited to watch people do math. That's how space travel just it gets you. It's, you know, that whole Final Frontier thing. Um, and as much as I love Star Trek, and I fucking love Star Trek, watching real people actually go to space, I think, is... um is always really exciting. And these were the, the first guys to do it. And uh, it's, uh, what, eight episodes, ten episodes? They're, they're releasing them weekly. Um, right now, at the time of recording this, you can see the first two episodes. Uh, but it's pretty good. I, I'm really enjoying it. I'm, I'm 
I'm learning a lot. I'm assuming it's accurate. You know, I don't know for sure. Um, I tried to Google uh, things about the the Mercury Seven, like as I was watching it, and it's really difficult to find things. Like it seems like Alan Shepard was a bit of a cheating horn dog, but I couldn't find anything that would support or deny those claims. So I'm not entirely sure to the validity of the show, but I'm assuming that they did their homework. If it's based off the the book, you know, then then maybe the homework was done for them. I'm not really sure, but it's uh it's really good. And if you like space travel and um, late fifties, uh, early sixties Americana, um, alongside a lot of a lot of drama, like uh, Gordon Cooper didn't have, a, like all the astronauts needed to have like happy families for you know like fucking suburban America reasons, and Gordon Cooper didn't, and his his wife left him um, and took their daughter with him um, or kids I think that two kids. Um, but because of the astronaut, like, he was like, can you help me out here? I really want to go to space. And so they, like, lied to reporters and said they were happy. And in the reality, they weren't. And it's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of really good drama there. Um, if you're into, into that sort of thing. I'm fucking stumbling all over my words. It's really early in the morning. I just realized I hadn't talked about the show yet, so I wanted to. Um, because I think it's good. And if you like space travel and Americana and, um, drama then you will enjoy this show. And I hope Disney Plus does more things like this, you know? It's very much not a not a Disney show. It doesn't feel like a Disney show. Um, but it's a, it's a fun watch and I'm enjoying it. So yeah, the right stuff now on now on Disney Plus. Not sponsored, but maybe someday. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Well, it is time for me to dive headfirst into quite possibly, well, not quite possibly, one of H.P. Lovecraft's most famousest books, Call of Cthulhu. I thought about reading this one with out of my out of my enormous complete collective works of H.P. Lovecraft, but this book weighs like I don't know. Even if it weighed like five pounds, I, like this is not a short short story. Um, I believe in my text it is a whopping, uh, like 30, 35 pages. I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but this is a big fucking book. Fine, fuckers. I'll start at the big book, and once my arms get tired, I've got the PDF right here. So, <laughs> Call of Cthulhu. Oh, man. I, I do kind of want to read this, um, there's a little blurb at the beginning of this that talks about how it, um, it builds off of Dagon, which is... To, to this point, my favorite Lovecraft work, because it's the only one I've read so far that actually dealt with what I would consider to be Lovecraftian horror. And Cthulhu is kind of like the hallmark poster child for, for Lovecraft. Um, and according to this little blurb, this is the first book that deals with um, Lovecraft's uh, cosmicism. I believe cosmicism. Yeah, the, the grander uh, universal uh, kind of pantheon of cosmic horror that he creates. Um, kind of starts with this one. So I'm very excited to get to get into this. Uh, and there's a quote here. Of such great powers or beings that may be conceivably a... Sur- that may be conceivably a survival. Of such great powers or beings, there may be conceivably a survival. There we go. 
a survival of a hugely remote period when consciousness was manifested, perhaps in shapes and forms long since withdrawn before the tide of advancing humanity. Forms of which poetry and legend alone have caught a flying memory and called them gods, monsters, and mythical beings of all sorts and kinds. Algernon Blackwood. There's a little annotation here. Um, apparently Blackwood is from the centaur. Oh, Blackwood. Oh, it's a real person. Oh, that's fine. Anyway. Part one. The horror in clay. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it is not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but someday the piecing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightened position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. Holy shit. <laughs> That was the most powerful opening paragraph I've ever read. My God. I'm reading that again. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it is not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little. But someday the piecing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of a fine position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into peace and safety of a new dark age. Theosophists? There's a little note here. Those who speculate on the nature of the soul, in particular those who espouse the systems and beliefs and teaching of the Theosophical Society, founded in New York City in 1875. Incorporating aspects of Buddhism and Brahmism, especially the belief in reincarnation and spiritual evolution. Huh. Well, there you go. Theosophists have guessed at the awesome grandeur of the cosmic cycle wherein our world and human race form transient incidents. They have hinted at strange survivals in terms which would freeze the blood if not masked by bland optimism. But it is not from them that there came the single glimpse of forbidden eons, which chills me when I think of it and maddens me when I dream of it. That glimpse, like all dread glimpses of truth, flashed out of from an accidental piecing together of separate things. In this case, an old newspaper item in the notes of a dead professor. I hope that no one else will accomplish this piecing out. Certainly, if I live, I shall never knowingly supply a link in so hideous a chain. I think that the professor, too, intended to keep silent regarding the part he knew, and that he would have destroyed his notes had not sudden death seized him. My knowledge of the thing began in the winter of 1926 to 1927 with the death of my great-uncle George Gamel Engel, Professor Emeritus of Semitic uh, Languages in Brown University, Providence, Rhode Island. Professor Engel was widely known as an authority on the ancient inscriptions and had frequently been resorted, uh, resorted, to, by, resorted to by the heads of prominent museums, so that his passing at the age of 92 may be recalled by many. Locally, interest was intensified by the obscurity of the cause of death. The presser had been stricken whilst returning from Newport boat, from the Newport boat, falling suddenly, as witnesses said, to have been jostled by a nautical-looking uh, individual who had come from the queer dark courts on the precipitous hillside, which formed a shortcut from the waterfront to the deceased's home in William Street. Physicians were unable to find any visible disorder, but concluded after perplexed debate that some obscure lesion of the heart induced by the brisk ascent of so steep a hill by so elderly a man was responsible for the end. 
At the time, I saw no reason to dissent from this dictum, but latterly, I am inclined to wonder, and more than wonder. As my great-uncle's heir and executor, executor, sorry, I can pronounce words, for he died a childless widower, I was expected to go over his papers with some thoroughness, and for that purpose moved his entire set of files and boxes to my quarters in Boston. Much of the material which I correlated will later be published by the American Archaeological Society. Huh. Okay. Sorry, they spell archaeological here with that weird A-E um, letter after arc. Archaeological. Interesting. Um, I feel like I've seen that before, but I can't remember where. But there was one box which I found exceedingly puzzling and which I felt much adverse from shooing to other eyes. It had been locked, and I did not find the key till it occurred to me to examine the personal ring which the professor carried always in his pocket. Then, indeed, I succeeded in opening it, but when I did, so seemed only to be confronted by a greater and more closely locked barrier. For what could the meaning of this queer clay ba um, bass relief and the disjointed jottings, ramblings, and cuttings which I found? Had my uncle in his later years become credulous of the most superficial impostures? I resolved to search out the eccentric sculptor responsible for this apparent disturbance for an old man's peace of mind. Fuck me, this book is heavy. Switching arms. Oh, Jesus. There's a drawing here. Lovecraft's drawing of the Wilcox sculpture dated 1943. It's uh, Cthulhu sitting in a thinker pose on a box. <laughs> That's just adorable. Um, Cthulhu here has three eyes, a face full of tentacles, wings on his back, and appears to be just covered in scaly flesh. That is... Pretty fucking, I mean, god damn it. I know Cthulhu is, is so, like, ubiquitous in today's society, but to come up with that, to invent that, that takes an incredible amount of creativity. Or maybe it's all real. Maybe it's all real and he just saw Cthulhu and he's just writing the shit down to warn us. Hmm. But Cthulhu is a fucking creative-ass piece of monsterism. The bass relief was a rough rectangle less than an inch thick and about five to six inches in area, obviously of modern origin. This design, however, was far from modern in atmosphere and suggestion. For although the vagaries of cubism and futurism are many and wild, they do not often reproduce that cryptic regularity which lurks in prehistoric writing. And writing of some kind, the bulk of these designs certainly seem to be, though my memory, despite much familiarity with the papers and collections of my uncles, failed in any way to identify this particular species or even to hint at its remotest affiliations. Above these apparent hieroglyphics was a figure of evidently pictorial intent, though its impressionistic execution forbade a very clear idea of its nature. Oh, man. There's a lot of mouth sounds in this writing. That was a fucking... That was a slog of a sentence. Here it is again. Above these apparent hieroglyphics was a figure of evidently pictorial intent, though its impressionistic execution forbade a very clear idea of its nature. It seemed to be a sort of monster, or a symbol representing a monster, of a form which only a diseased fancy could conceive. If I say that my somewhat extravagant imagination yielded simultaneous pictures of an octopus, a dragon, and a human creature, I shall not be unfaithful to the spirit of the thing. A pulpy, tentacled head surmounted a grotesque and scaly body with rudimentary wings, but it was the general outline of the whole which made it shockingly frightful. Behind the figure was a vague suggestion of a cyclopean architectural background. The writing accompanying this oddity was, aside from a stack of press cuttings, in Professor Engel's most recent hand and made no pretense to literary style. What seemed to be the main document was headed Cthulhu Cult. And Cthulhu here has a fucking uh, little asterisk here, so what is this note? My god! 
Oh, Lovecraft gave directions for the pronunciation of the name. The word is supposed to represent a fumbling human's attempt to catch the phonetics of an absolutely non-human word. The name of the hellish entity was invented by beings whose vocal organs were not like man's, hence it has no relation to the human speech equipment. The syllables were determined by a psychological, um, physiological equipment wholly unlike ours, hence could never be uttered perfectly by human throats. Up to the time of the story, Professor Engel, when Professor Engel became interested in the matter, there had never been any attempt to render the name of the hellish monster in our alphabet. Although Abdul Alazred made an attempt in Arabic letters, which was repeated in Greek by the Byzantine translators. The Latin translator merely copied the Greek. The letters C-T-H-U-L-H-U were merely what Professor Engel devised to represent, roughly or imperfectly, of course, the dream name orally mouthed to him by the young artist Wilcox. The actual sound, as near as human organs could imitate or human letters record it, may be taken something like Kahulu, with the first syllable pronounced gutturally and very thickly. So, Kahulu. The U is like that in full, and the first syllable is not unlike Kul, in sound, hence the H representing the guttural thickness. Huh. Note that this is the first name ascribed by Lovecraft to a supernatural being. While other tales describe Earth gods, other gods, elder gods, and so forth, none have hitherto been named. Interesting. So it's Cthulhu. Like, like you would say, like if you were trying to say something in Klingon. You know? Cthulhu, I guess. With that hard sound. You know. Interesting. I'm just going to call him Cthulhu so I don't shred my vocal cords. In character, painstakingly printed to avoid the erroneous reading of a word so unheard of. The manuscript was divided into two sections. First of which was headed 1925, Dream and Dream Work of H.A. Wilcox, 7 Thomas Street, Providence, Rhode Island. And the second, Narrative of Inspector John R. Lagrasse, 121 Benville Street, New Orleans, Louisiana, and 1908 A.A.S.M.T.G. Okay. Notes of the same and Professor Webb's account. The other manuscript papers were all brief notes, some of them accounts of the queer dreams of different persons, some of them citations from theosophical books and magazines, notably W. Scott Elliott's Atlantis and the Lost Lemuria, and the rest comments on long-surviving secret societies and hidden cults with references to passages in such mythological and anthropological sources, source books as Fraser's Golden Bough and Miss Murray's Witch Cult in Western Europe. The cuttings largely alluded to outremental illnesses and outbreaks of group folly and Romania in the spring of 1925. The first half of the principal manuscript told a very peculiar tale. It appears that on March 1st, 1925, a thin, dark young man of neurotic and excited aspect was called upon, had called upon Professor Engel, bearing the sing singular clay bass relief, which was then exceedingly damp and fresh. His card bore the name Henry Anthony Wilcox, and my uncle had recognized him as the youngest son of an excellent family slightly known to him, who had latterly been studying sculpture by um, at the Rhode Island School of Design and living alone at the Flirtily Building near that institution. Wilcox was a precocious youth of known genius, but great eccentricity, and had a childhood um, and had from childhood excited extension through strange stories and odd dreams he was in the habit of relating. He called himself psychically hypersensitive. Uh, but the staid folks of the ancient commercial city dismissed him as merely queer. Never mingling much with his kind, he had dropped gradually from social visibility and was now known only to a small group of aesthetes from other towns. I don't know. Even in Providence, Art Club, anxious to preserve its conservatism, found him quite hopeless. On the occasion of the visit, ran the professor's manuscript, the sculptor abruptly asked for the benefit of his host's archaeological knowledge in identifying the hieroglyphs of the base relief. 
He spoke in a dreamy, stilted manner, which suggested poise and alienated sympathy, and my uncle shrewd some sharpness in replying, for the conspicuous freshness of the tablet implied kinship with anything but archaeological. But archaeology. Young Wilcox rejoined, uh, rejoinder, which impressed my uncle enough to make him recall and record it verbatim, was of a fantastically poetic cast which must have typed his whole conversation, which I have since found highly characteristic of him. He said, It is new indeed, for I made it last night in a dream of strange cities, and dreams are older than brooding Tyr, or the contemplative Sphinx, or garden-girded Babylon. Where is Tyr? Um, oh, apparently the Fleur de Lis house is a real place. That's fun. And the actual the drawing, Fleur de Lis house, uh, which Wilcox had at his studio. Oh, okay. Um, the, there's a drawing in here that's like the exact same. It's the exact same house. So the house is real. As of 2006, it, it was it still stood. And um, where did I say it was? Louisiana? Is that where the Fleur de Lis house was? Um, doesn't say here. Fleur de Lis building. Oh, Rhode Island School of Design. So it's up in, um, I'm guessing, Providence. I've been to Rhode Island. There's a town called Rockport, uh, Rhode Island, which is fucking gorgeous. It's such a quaint little sea town. Anyway, my forearms are getting absolutely exhausted holding this thing up, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna fucking try at least. Where was I? It was then that he began a rambling tale which suddenly played upon a sleeping memory and won the fervent interest of my uncle. There had been a slight earthquake tremor the night before the most considerable felt in New England for some years, and Wilcox's imagination had been keenly affected. Upon retiring, he had had an unprecedented dream of great cyclopean cities of titanic blocks and sky-flung monoliths all dripping with green ooze and sinister with latent horror. Hieroglyphics had covered the walls and pillars, and from some undetermined point below had come a voice that was not a voice, a chaotic sensation which only fancy could transmute into sound, but which he attempted to render by, um, by an almost unpronounceable jumble of letters. Cthulhu Fatagan. Cthulhu Fatagan. Yes. The verbal jumble was the key to the recollection which excited and disturbed Professor Engel. He questioned the sculptor for scientific minuteness, Studied with almost frantic intensity the bas relief on which the youth had found himself working, chilled and clad only in his nightclothes, when walking, um, when waking had stolen, um, when waking had stolen bewilderingly over him. My uncle blamed his old age. Wilcox afterwards said for his slowness in recognizing both hieroglyphics and pictorial design. Many of his questions uh, seemed highly out of place to his visitor, especially those which tried to connect the latter with strange cults and societies. And Wilcox could not understand the repeated promises of silence which he was offered in exchange for admission of membership in some widespread mythological or penology religious body. When Professor Engel became convinced, switching hands, ow, oh man, convinced that the sculptor was indeed ignorant of any cult or system of cryptic lore, he besieged his visitor with demands for future reports of dreams. This bore regular fruit, for after the first interview, the manuscript records daily calls of the young man, during which he related startling fragments of nocturnal nocturnal imagery, whose burden was always some terrible cyclopean vista of dark dripping stone, with subterranean voice or intelligence shouting maniacally in enigmatical sense impacts uninscribable save as gibberish. The two sounds most frequently repeated are those rendered by the letters Cthulhu and Riley. Riley. It's R apostrophe L-Y-E-H. On March 23rd, the manuscript continued. Wilcox failed to appear. Inqu inquiries at, at his quarters revealed that he had been stricken with an obscure sort of fever and taken to the home of his family in Waterman Street. He had cried out in the night, arousing several other artists in the building, and had manifest since then only alterations of unconsciousness and delirium. My uncle at once telephoned the family, and from that time forward kept a close watch of the case, calling often on Thayer Street office to Dr. Toby, whom he learned to be in charge. 
The youth's febrile mind, apparently, was dwelling on strange things, and the doctor shuddered now and then as he spoke of them. They included not only a repetition of what he had formerly dreamed, but touched wildly on gigantic things mile high, which walked or lumbered about. He, at no time, fully described this object, but occasionally frantic words, as repeated by Dr. Toby, convinced the professor that this must be identical with the nameless monstrosity he had sought to depict with his dream sculpture. Reference to this object, the doctor added, was invariably a prelude to the young man's subsistence, um, subsidence into lethargy. His temperature, oddly enough, was not greatly above normal, but on the whole condition, but the whole condition was otherwise to suggest a true fever rather than mental disorder. On April 2nd, about 3 p.m., every trace of Wilcox's malady suddenly ceased. He sat upright in bed, astonished to find himself at home and completely ignorant of what had happened, um, dream or reality, since the night of March 22nd. Pronounced well by his physician, he returned to his quarters by in three days, but to Professor Engel, he was of no further assistance. All traces of strange dreaming had vanished with his recovery, but my uncle kept no record of his night thoughts after a week of pointless, irrelevant accounts of, of thoroughly usual visions. Here the first part of the manuscript ended, for reference, but references to certain of the scattered notes gave me much material for thought. So much, in fact, that the only ingrained skepticism then forming my philosophy can account for my continued distrust of the artist. The notes in question were those descriptive of the dreams of various persons covering the same period as that in which young Wilcox had had his strange visitations. My uncle, it seemed, had quickly instituted a prodigiously far-flung body of inquiries amongst nearly all the friends whom he could question without impertinence, asking for nightly reports of the dreams and the dates of any notable visions for some time past. The reception of his request seemed to have been varied, but he must at very least have received more responses than any ordinary man could have handled without a secretary. Uh, this orridge... Sorry, I have to turn the page. Eh. Original correspondence was not preserved, but his notes formed a thoroughly, a thorough and really significant digest. Really significant. I mean, fucking... That's like, that's strike one, Lovecraft. Really significant. Your writing so far has been impeccable, kid. And then you fucking sneak in there with a really significant... <sighs> Unfortunate. This is amazing. Average people in society and business, New England's traditional salt of the earth, gave an almost completely negative result through scattered cases of unused but formless nocturnal impressions appear here and there, always between March 23rd and April 2nd, period of young Wilcox's delirium. Scientific men were a little more affected, though four cases of vague descriptions suggest furtive glimpses of strange landscapes, and in one case, there mentioned a dread of something abnormal. It was from artists and poets that the pertinent answers came, and I know that panic would have broken loose had they been able to compare notes as was lacking their original letters. I, I, I have suspected the compiler of having asked leading questions or of having edited the correspondence and corroboration of what he had latently resolved to see. That is why I continued my field at Wilcox, somewhat cognizant of the old data which my uncle had possessed, had been imposing on the veteran scientists. These responses from asked, um, artists, I guess, told a disturbing tale. From February 20th to April 2nd, a large proportion of them had dreamed very bizarre things, the intensity of the dreams being um, immeasurably, um, being immeasurably the stronger during the period of the sculptor's delirium. Over a fourth of those who reported anything reported scenes and half-sounds not unlike which those which uh, Wilcox had described, and some of the dreamers confessed acute fears of the gigantic, nameless thing visible toward the last. One case, which the note describes with emphasis, was very sad. The subject, a wildly known architect uh, with leanings towards theos um, theosophy and occultism, went violently insane on the day to young Wilcox's seizure and expired several months later after incessant screamings to be saved from some, um, saved from some escaped denizen of hell. 
Had my uncle referred to these cases by name instead of merely by number, I should have attempted some corroboration of personal investigation. But as it was, I succeeded in tracing down only a few. All of these, however, bore out the notes in full. I have often wondered if all the objects the professor's questioning felt as puzzled um, as did this fraction. It is well that no explanation shall ever reach them. The press cuttings I had um, intimated touched on the cases of panic, mania, and eccentricity during the given period. Professor Engel must have employed a cutting bureau, for the number of extracts was tremendous, and the sources scattered throughout the globe. Here was a nocturnal suicide in London where a lone sleeper had leapt from a window after a shocking cry. Here, likewise, a rambling letter to the editor of a paper in South America where a fanatic deduces a dire future of, from visions he had seen. A despatch from California describes a theosophic Theosophist, fuck, colony, as donning white robes and masks for some glorious fulfillment which never arrives, whilst items from India speak guardly of Syria's natives' unrest toward the end of March. Voodoo orgies multiply in Haiti, and African outposts report ominous mutterings. American officers in the Philippines find certain tribes bothersome after, about this time, and the New York policemen mobbed by hysterical Levantines on the night of March 23rd to the 20, or 22nd to the 23rd. The west of Ireland, too, is full of wild rumor, oh, fuck. Stupid, stupid computer making sounds. Apparently, one of my Amazon deliveries are here. Woo! Where was I? The West of Ireland, too, was full of wild rumor and legendary, um, and legendary, as a fantastic painter named, um, Erdros Bonat hanged a blasphemous dream landscape in the Paris Spring Salon of 1926. And so numerous are the recorded troubles in the sane asylums that only a miracle can have stopped the medical fraternity from noting strange parallelisms and drawing mystified conclusions. A weird bunch of cuttings, all told. And I can, I can, at this day, it scarcely envisions the callous rationalism which, with which I had set them aside. But I was then convinced that Yeldon Wilcox had known the older matters mentioned by the professor. So what is this thing? There's a note here about the, the dream landscape in the Paris Salon of 1926. Note 32. Is that a real painting? Let's find out. Uh, 1926, the Paris Spring Salon was no longer a single venue. From about the mid-18th century, the salon, always thus designated, sponsored by National Academia des Beaux-Arts, was the official exhibition of French art held biannually. 1808, blah, 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 blah. It's just about the, it's just about the art studio itself. Um, yeah, and there is no, there's no such work. Oh, that's gross. Um, that is the end of part one. This is a tremendously good book so far. I think it is incredibly well written. That opening paragraph still fucking blows my mind. That might be one of the finest opening paragraphs I've read, and I've read a lot of opening paragraphs, but, I mean, I almost want to read... I'm going to read it again. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all of its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of sea, black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but someday the piecing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position there and that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light and peace and safety of a new dark age. It's fucking... Wow. Just fucking... A+. Plus. I cannot wait to see where this goes. I usually don't like to get political in this show, but I just watched the West Wing HBO Max special, and it is impossible to talk about it without getting political. So if you don't like politics, um, you can just fast forward a couple of minutes. <laughs> but if you do like politics, or rather, you know, being an American, um, then you should, you should stick around. So the HBO West Wing special brought back the original cast... Uh, with the addition of Sterling K. Brown to play Leo McGarry, since John Spencer passed away in the final season of The West Wing during its original airing. 
and they did a stage reading of Hartsfield Landing, which is a town in New Hampshire uh, that at the at the according to the episode had sixty three a population of like sixty three people, forty of whom were registered voters. And Hartsfield Landing has accurately predicted the election of every president since Taft, I believe, according to the according to the show. I have no idea if that is still the case, or if Hartsfield Landing is even a real place. I should probably Google it. It probably is. Sorkin did his homework. Hartsfield Landing um, is... Well, I mean, that's the episode. Are you a real place? Hartsfield Landing, New Hampshire. Boop. Um, three tiny New Hampshire's towns voted at midnight. Um, hold on. Uh, do, 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 do. Sorry, I'm just reading this real quick. I want to, want to be correct. Um, Dixville Notch, uh, is, is a town. So maybe they just changed the name of the town to Hartsfield Landing. Um, I'm pretty sure it's Dixville. Dixville Notch is the is the actual name of the town. Um, in 2008, they voted for Obama. In 2012, they voted for Romney. <laughs> okay, so yeah, it's not a, it's it's not perfect um, by any means. They voted for uh, Kerry. In oh no, sorry, they voted for Bush. They voted for Bush most most of the time. Uh, and then in '96, they voted for Dole. So yeah, okay. Um, Dix, Dixville Notch is uh is, is has not accurately predicted the uh the fucking voters, but it's interesting that there is there is a town. It's not called Hurstville Landing. It's called Dixville Notch. Anyway, it's about this town, and it is framed. This this episode is framed uh, with this uh kind of war games esque conflict between China and Taiwan. Because Taiwan is about to announce that they're going to hold their first free election. And uh, at this period in history, I have no idea what the current geopolitical climate is like. But at this point in history, uh, China claimed that Taiwan was part of China. Um, and by holding free elections, that, you know, it's bad. China doesn't like that. So uh, the U.S. starts moving carrier groups towards the Taiwan Strait um, in a show of force. And uh, the, the, the whole conflict is told over the story. I don't want to go over the entire thing. It's a really good episode. Um, and it talks about uh, the, the, the power of voting from the big scale, where Taiwan wants to hold their first free elections, to the small scale of Hartsfield Landing. And uh, Donna tried to convince like this one elderly couple to vote for Bartlett instead of Richie. Um, and then at the end of that, Josh should just, like, just let him vote. Um, you know, like they're Americans. That's, that's their right to choose. Um, and I have often said in the past, that if that if you you know if I encourage y'all to vote, um, I I usually follow that up with I don't care who you vote for, just vote. You know, vote your conscience, vote what you believe in. Um, as long as it's not Trump, <laughs> it's so fucking like it's it's harder this year than it ever has been in the past um, to to play both sides, and you know being impartial is is wonderful and all that. But at the same time, yeah, I don't know. Just you know, vote. That's all I'm gonna say. Just vote. Um, but the the but the 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 fucking special to get back on track was um 
was really well done. I loved the the power of it being a stage play, and it shows that uh, Sorkin really kind of did his job uh, when it was when it came to writing these things because it translated to a stage play pretty goddamn well. I loved how they used like minimal sets, like when Bartlett gets in the car or gets off the plane um, in the in the uh, Oval Office. It's all fairly you know minimal, and it it feels really powerful. And these actors are, you know, fantastic. And they really kind of do a clinic on, on how to uh, just have a presence on stage. Um, and you can feel like the volume in their voices being used to carry emotion and all that stuff. And it's, it's really fun. And then throughout the special, there are uh, messages from the cast uh, from, from varying perspectives like uh, Dulé Hill and Elizabeth Moss talk to the the youth vote uh sterling k brown and dulay hill talk to the african-american vote uh you've got michelle obama there lin-manuel miranda was there bill clinton was there uh which was which was a nice nice surprise uh samuel jackson was there all of you all of them encouraging you to vote and to vote early and to vote by mail and if you're if you're young and healthy uh you should vote in person um, or work to be a, a poll worker to get those lines moving a bit faster. All of these, all of these wonderful things. Um, and there is a, a website called vote.org that can not only help you register to vote, but it can tell you where your polling places are. It can tell you when you can vote, all of, all of these things. Check your registration. It takes less than two minutes. As of recording this right now, we have 17 days until election day 17 days 17 hours 18 minutes and 25 seconds until election day this is all coming from vote.org so yes um it's it is it is unbelievably important this year that you vote and the the west wing special is a is a wonderful reminder of that it almost made me cry a fair number of times um just with you know the the emotion and the the passion that they showcased uh, while they were while they were doing this, um, and I think they chose a, a good episode to to recreate for uh, a stage play. It's probably not my favorite episode. Not that I particularly hated Hartsfield Landing. Uh, Hartsfield Landing was one of the last episodes I ever saw. I never finished The West Wing. Got a little too uh, a little too uh, kind of let's throw darts at a wall and see what happens. What if what if Sam left to become a senator? But what if Allison Janney became the new chief of staff? But you know, just like, uh, uh, it's too many, too many changes. What if we kill this guy? Black. Anyway, anyway it's a, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good episode. I, I enjoyed it immensely. Um, and it's kind of fun because it was, it was different, you know, like it would have been so easy. Well, maybe not during COVID, but it would have been so easy for them to like film a new episode and just have it be another West Wing episode. But it was, wasn't a new episode. It was a stage play. And that was that was a, a unique piece of content, you know. You don't see a lot of fucking recorded stage plays nowadays. And um, I don't know, there was some something refined about it. It was simple, and uh, it felt more um, homegrown, I guess. Pretty sure that was the point. Uh, yeah, I I very much enjoyed it, and I would love for similar things to exist more you know I think um I think they found something really cool there with that with that format and it'd be a shame to, to see this be the only example of it
So, I don't know. Maybe if a lot of people watch it, then HBO will set up and be like, do people really like stage plays? Like, how fucking cool would it be if they redid, like, the pilot episode of Game of Thrones as a stage play? I think that'd be awesome. I'd be all over that. Bring back the original cast. You know, just fucking, just fucking stage play it. I think that'd be incredible. People would love it. Anyway, please vote. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Part two, the tale of Inspector Legrasse. Legrasse. The older matters, this fucking book, which made the sculptor's dream and bass relief so significant to my uncle, formed the subject of the second half of his long manuscript. Once before it appears, Professor Engel had seen the hellish outlines of the nameless monstrosity puzzled over the unknown hieroglyphics and heard the ominous syllables, which can be rendered only as Cthulhu. And all this in so stirring a horrible a connection, and uh, so stirring a horrible a connection, that it is small wonder he pursued young Wilcox with queries and demands for data. The earlier experience had come in 1908, 17 years before, when the American Archaeological Society held its annual meeting in St. Louis. Professor Angle had, as befitted one of his authority and attainments, had had a prominent part in all the deliberations and was one of the first to be approached by several outsiders who took advantage of the convocation to offer questions for correcting, for correct answering and problems of expert solutions. The chief of these outsiders, and in a short time the focus of interest for the entire meeting, was a commonplace-looking middle-aged man who had traveled all the way from New Orleans for certain special information unobtainable in any local source. His name was John Raymond Laglassi, and he was a profession by uh, and by profession an inspector of police. Javert. With him, he bore the subject of his visit, a grotesque, repulsive, and apparently very ancient stone statue statuette whose origin he was at a loss to determine. It must not be fancied that Inspector Lagrassi had the least interest in archaeology. On the contrary, his wish for enlightenment was prompted by purely professional consideration. The statuette, idol, fetish, or whatever it was, had been captured some months before in the wooded swamp south of New Orleans during a raid on a supposed voodoo meeting. And so singular and hideous were the rites connected with it that the police could not but realize that they had stumbled on a dark cult totally unknown to them and infinitely more diabolical than even the blackest of African voodoo circles. Of its origin, apart from the erratic and unbelievable tales extorted from the captured members, absolutely nothing was to be discovered, hence the anxiety of the police for the antiquarian lore, for any antiquarian lore, which might help them place the frightful symbol, and through it track down the cult to its fountainhead. There is an image of this statue here. Um, apparently there are 500 versions of the statue. It just appears to be... Oh, I see it now. It's, the, it's, the, it's a statue of the... Clay symbol, so it's Cthulhu sitting on a box, and his face is all tentacly and gross. Um, yeah, anyway. Inspector Lagrassi was scarcely prepared for the sensation which offered, which his offering created. One sight of the thing had been enough to throw the assembled men of science into a state of tense excitement. They lost no time in crowding around him to gaze at the diminutive figure whose utter strangeness and air of genuinely abysmal antiquity hinted so potently at unopened and archaic vistas. No recognized school sculpture had animated this terrible object, yet centuries and even thousands of years seemed recorded in its dim greenish surface of unreplaceable, unplaceable stone. 
The figure, which finally passed slowly from man to man for close and careful study, was between 7 and 8 inches in height and of exquisitely artistic workmanship. It represented a monster of vaguely anthropoid outline, but with an octopus-like head whose face was a mass of feelers, a scaly, rubbery-looking body, prodigious claws on hind and forefeet, and long, narrow wings behind. This thing, which seemed instinct, um, which seemed instinct, yeah, with a fearsome and unnatural malignancy, was of a somewhat bloated culpus. Wait, what is it? No. Coral. Corpalescence. There it is. And squatted evilly on a rectangular block or pedestal covered with undecipherable characters. The tips of the wings touched the back edge of the block. The seat occupied the center. Uh, whilst the long curved claws of the doubled up crouching hind legs gripped the front edge and extended a quarter of the way down toward the bottom of the pedestal. The cephalopod head was bent forward so that the ends of the face feelers brushed the backs of the huge forepaws which clasped the croucher's elevated knees. The aspect of the hole was abnormally lifelike and the more subtle, subtle and more subtly fearful because its source was of total unknown origin. Its vast, awesome, and incalculable age was mistakable, yet not one link did it shrew, did it shew with any known type of art belonging to the civilization's youth, or indeed to any other time. Totally separate and apart, its very material was a mystery, for the soapy, greenish black stone with its gold or iridescent flecks and striations resembled nothing familiar with genealogy or meteorology. The characters along the base were equally baffling, and no member present, despite a representation of half the world's expert leading in this field, could form the least notion for even their remotest linguistic kinship. They, like the subject and material, belong to something horribly remote and distinct from mankind, as we know it, something frightfully suggestive of old and unhallowed uh, cycles of life in which our world and our conceptions have no part. And yet, as members severely shook their heads and confessed defeat at the inspector's problem, there was one man in the gathering who suspected a touch of bizarre familiarity with the monster's shape and writing, and who presently told with some uh, diffidence of the odd trifle he knew. This person was the weight William Channing Webb, professor of anthropology in Princeton University and an explorer of no slight note, uh, which is listed here. No slight note. Uh, ba -ba 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 -ba. Roman archaeology... I don't know. It didn't seem to provide any details. Professor Webb had been engaged 48 years before in a tour of Greenland, Iceland in search of some runic inscriptions which he failed to unearth. Whilst high up on Greenland's west coast, he had encountered a singular tribe or cult of degenerate Esquima. Esquima? Oh, Eskimos. Sorry, it's just spelled fascinating here. Uh, do, 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 do. whose religion, a curious form of devil worship, chilled him with its deliberate bloodthirstiness and repulsiveness. It was a faith of which other Eskimo knew little, which and which they mentioned only with shudders, saying it had come down from horribly ancient eons before um, ever the world was made. Before ever? Seems like it should be before even, but before ever it is. Besides the nameless rites and human sacrifices, there were certain queer hereditary rituals addressed to a supreme elder devil, or Tuonosk. Interesting. And of this, Professor Webb had been had taken careful phonetic copy of an aged Angcock or wizard priest, expressing the sounds in Roman letters as best he knew how. But just now the prime significance was the fetish uh but just now of prime significance was the fetish which this cult cherished, and around which they danced when the aura leapt high over the ice cliffs. 
It was, the professor stated, a very crude bass relief of stone comprising a hideous picture and some cryptographics. And so far as he could tell, it was a rough parallel in all essential features of the bestial thing now lying before the meeting. This data, received with uh, suspense and astonishment by the assembled members, proved doubly exciting to Inspector Legrassi, and he began at once to ply his informant with questions. Having noted and copied an oral ritual among the swamp cult worshippers his men had arrested, he besought the professor to remember as best he might the syllables taken down amongst the um, diabolist diabolist, um, Eskimos. There they followed an exhaustive comparison of details and moment of really odd silence when both detective and scientist agreed on virtual identity of the phrase common uh, to um, to two hellish rituals so many worlds distant apart. What, in substance, both the Eskimo wizards and the Louisiana swamp priests... Fucking Jesus. <laughs> Hello? I am an ice-born wizard. Well, I am a Louisiana swamp priest. <laughs> what a fucking D&D campaign that would be. Uh, had chanted uh, to their kindred idols with something very like this. The word divisions being guessed at um, from traditional breaks in the phrase as chanted above. And it's the fucking classic. Fling, refargan, Cthulhu, flag, and refargan, fatagan. Negrassi, at one point in advance of Professor Webb, for several of among his mongrel prisoners had repeated uh, to him what the older celebrants had told him what the words meant. This text, as given, ran something like this. In his house, Athrael, dead Cthulhu, waits dreaming. And now, in response to a general and urgent demand, Inspector Legrassi related as fully as possible his experience with the swamp worshippers, telling a story to which I could see my uncle attached to attach profound significance. It savored the wildest dreams of mythmaker and theosophist, and disclosed an astonishing degree of cosmic imagination among such half-castes and pariahs as might be at least expected to possess it. And here's that fucking tale of Louisiana swamp priests and, and so on and so forth. Oh, God, what have I done with the keyword? <laughs> on November 1st, 1907, there had come to Louisiana or to New Orleans police a frantic summons from the swamp and lagoon country in the south. The squatters, they're mostly primitive but good-natured descendants of Lafayette's men. Uh, Jean Lafayette was a French buccaneer who, in exchange for pardon, helped General Andrew Jackson defend New Orleans against the British in 1815 were in the grip of stark uh, terror from an unknown thing which had stolen upon them in the night. It was voodoo, apparently, but voodoo of a more terrible sort than they had ever known, and some of their women and children had disappeared since the malevolent tom-tom had begun its incessant feet uh, beating far within the black haunted wood where no dweller ventured. There were insane shouts and harrowing screams, soul-chilling chants and dancing devil flames, and the frightened messenger added the people could stand it no more. So a body of 20 police filling two carriages and an automobile had set out in late afternoon with the shivering squatter as a guide. At the end of the passable road they alighted. For miles they splashed on in silence uh, through the terrible cypress woods where day never came. Ugly roots and malignant uh, hanging nooses of Spanish moss beset them. And now and then a pile of dank stone or fragments of a rotting wall intensified a hint of morbid habitation of depression. Which every malformed tree and every fungus islet combined to create. At length, the squatter settlement, a miserable huddle of huts, hove, um, hove in sight, and the hysterical dwellers ran out to cluster around a group of bobbing lanterns. The muffled beat of tom-toms was now faintly audible far, far ahead, and a curdling shriek came in frequent intervals with, when the wind shifted. A reddish glare, too, seemed to filter through the pale undergrowth beyond endless avenues of forest night. Reluctant even to be left alone again, 
Uh, each one of the cowed squatters refused point blank to advance another inch towards the scene of unholy worship. So Inspector Legrassi and his 19 colleagues plunged on unguided into black arcades of horror that none of them have ever trod before. The region now entered by the police was one of traditionally evil repute, substantially unknown and untraversed by white men. There were legends of a hidden lake. And there's a note here. There are dozens of small lakes south of New Orleans, and it is impossible to identify this lake from the scanty directions. At the end of the passable road reaches the tourist some miles to this one. Yeah, okay, so they, it's, I guess it's noting that we're not entirely sure the exact location, but there are a bunch of lakes down there. Unglimpsed by mortal sight in which dwelt a huge formless white polypus thing with luminous eyes and squatters worse... Oh, hold on a second. There were legends of a hidden lake unglimpsed by mortal sight in which dwelt a huge formless white polypus thing with luminous eyes. This is, clearly, this is not Cthulhu, for Cthulhu is described as uh, great immense. Is it one of the great old ones, the book questions? We don't know, I guess. And squatters whispered that bat-winged devils flew up out of caverns in inner earth to worship at midnight. They had said that, um, they said it had been there before Dibberville, before LaSalle, before Indians, before even the wholesome beasts and birds of the woods. It was nightmare itself, and to see it was to die. But it made men dream, and so they knew enough to keep away. The present voodoo orgy was indeed on the merest fringe of this abhorred area, but that location was bad enough. Hence, perhaps, the very place that the worship had terrified the squatters more than the shocking sounds and incidents. Interesting. Only poetry or madness could do justice to the noises heard by Lagrasse's men as they plowed through the black morass towards the red glare and the muffled tom-toms. There are vocal qualities peculiar to men and vocal qualities peculiar to beasts, and it is terrible to hear the one when the source should yield to the other. Animal fury and or orgiastic license here whipped themselves to demonic heights by howls and squawking ecstasies that tore and reverberated through the nighted woods like pestilent tempests from the gulfs of hell. My god. This fucking writing is so vivid. Now and then the less organized ululations um, would cease and for what seemed a well-drilled chorus of horse voices would rise in a sing-song chant that hideous phrase of ritual. For flag and flagging Cthulhu flagging and flagging for tagging. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Probably not, but it's fun to say. Then the men, having reached a spot where the trees were thinner, came suddenly in sight of the spectacle itself. Four of them reeled, one fainted, two were shaken into a frantic cry, which the mad cacophony of the orgy fortunately deadened. Legrassi dashed swamp water in his face of the fainting men and all stood trembling, nearly hypnotized with horror. In a natural glade of the swamp stood a grassy island of perhaps an acre extent, clear of trees and tolerably dry. On this now le leaped and twisted a more indescribable horde of human abnormality than any but a sim or angorala could paint. Okay. Um, I believe those are artists. Sydney Sim was an English painter. Okay, yeah. Um... Void of clothing, this hybrid spawn were braying, bellowing, and writhing about a monstrous ring-shaped bonfire, in the center of which, revealed by occasional rifts in the curtain of flame, stood a great granite monolith some eight feet high, on top of which, incongruous with its diminutiveness, rested the noxious carven statuette. From a wide circle of ten scaffolds set up at regular infolds, intervals, with the flame-girt monolith at the center hung, head downward, an oddly marred bot the oddly marred bodies of the helpless squatters who had disappeared. It was inside this circle that the ring of worshippers jumped and roared, the general direction of the mass motion being from left to right an endless bacchanal between the ring of bodies and the ring of fire. 
It may be only imagination, and it may have been only echoes which induced one of the men, an excitable Spaniard, to fancy he heard antiphonal responses to the ritual of some far and unilluminated spot deep within the wood of ancient legendary and horror. This man, Joseph D. Galvez, I later met in question, and he proved distractingly imaginative. He indeed went so far as to hint the faint beating of great wings and of great and a glimpse of shining eyes and the monstrous white bulk beyond the remotest trees. But I suppose he had been hearing too much native superstition. Fuck me, this book is good. Actually, the horrified pause of the men was comparatively brief duration. Duty came first, and although there must have been nearly a hundred Mongol celebrants in the throng, the police relied on their firearms and plunged determinately into the nauseous route. For five minutes, the resultant din and chaos were beyond description. Wild blows were struck, shots were fired, escapes were made, but the end of the grass, he was able to count some 47 sullen prisoners, whom he forced to dress in haste and fall in line between two rows of policemen. Five of the worshippers lay dead. Two several severely wounded were carried away on improvised stretchers by their fellow prisoners. The image of the monolith, of course, was carefully removed and carried back by La Grassi. Examined at headquarters after a trip of intense strain and weariness, the prisoners all proved to be men of very low mixed uh, mixed blood, Jesus, and mentally aberrant type. Most were semen, a sprinkling of uh, various backgrounds, gave a coloring of voodooism to the heterogeneous cult. Sorry, Lovecraft's racist as fuck, so I'm just skipping over it. Um, but before many questions were asked, it uh, became uh, manifest that something far deeper and older than mm -hmm, uh, fetishism was involved. Degraded and ignorant as they were, the creatures held with surprising consistency the central idea of their loathsome faith. Jesus. They worshipped, uh, so they say, the great old ones who lived ages before there were any men and who came the young world out of the sky. Those old ones were gone now inside the earth and under the sea, but their dead bodies had told their secrets and dreams to the first men who formed a cult that never died. It was that cult and the prisoners. I mean, he said the great old ones. It's the first time, right? It's the first time that that phrase is uttered. The great old ones. Where was I? Um, it was... Uh, um, this was that cult, and the prisoners had said it always existed and always would exist, hidden in distant wastes and dark places all over the world until the time when the great priest Cthulhu, from his dark house in the mighty city of Rael under the waters, shall rise and bring the earth again, uh, bring the earth again beneath his sway. Someday he would call, when the stars were ready and the secret cult would always be uh, waiting to liberate him. Meanwhile, no more must be told. There was a secret which even torture could not extract. Mankind was not absolutely alone among the conscious things of the earth, for shapes came out of the dark to visit the faithful few. But they were not the great old ones. No man had ever seen the old ones. The carven idol was the great Cthulhu, but none might say whether or not the others were precisely like him. No one could read the old writing now, but things were told by word of mouth. The chanted ritual was not the secret. That was never spoken aloud, only whispered. The chant only meant this. In his house at Ryle, dead Cthulhu waits dreaming. Only two of the prisoners were found sane enough to be hanged, and the rest were committed to various institutions. All denied a part of the ritual murders, and averred that killing had been done by black-winged ones, which had come to them from their immemorial meeting place in the haunted wood. But of those mysterious allies, no coherent account could ever be gained. What the police did, police did it extract came mainly from an immensely aged Mezio named um, Castro, uh, a person of mixed European and native descent. Ugh, Jesus Christ. Stop it with the fucking mixed blood thing. The people, his name's Castro, who claimed to have sailed to strange ports and talked with undying leaders of the cult in the mountains of China. Hmm. This likely refers to the monasteries of Tibet, the Himalayan region that formerly became independent of China in 1913. Yeah, that definitely fucking maintained. 
Anyway. Old Castor remembered bits of hideous legend that paled the speculations of Theos' office and made men of the world seem um, recent and transient indeed. And there had been aeons, or eons, when other things ruled the earth, and they had had great cities. Remains of them, he said, the deathless Chinaman, Jesus, had told him, were still found as Cyclopean stones on islands of the Pacific. They had all died vast epochs of time before men came, but there were arts which could revive them when the stars had come round again on the right positions of the cycle of eternity. They had indeed come themselves to the stars and brought uh, brought their image with them. All the theys and thems and theirs were capitalized, referring to the great old ones. These great old ones, Castro continued, were not composed altogether of flesh and blood. They had shape, for did not this star-fashioned image prove it? But that shape was not made of matter. When the stars were right, they could plunge from the world to world through the sky. But when the stars were wrong, they could not live. But although they no longer lived, they would never really die. They lay, they all lay in stone houses in their great city of Ryle, preserved by the spells of the mighty Cthulhu for a glorious resurrection when the stars and the earth might once more be ready for them. But at the time, some force from outside must serve to liberate their bodies. The spells that preserved them interact likewise prevented them from making an initial move, and they could only lie awake in the dark and think whilst uncounted million years rolled by. They knew all that was occurring in the universe, but their mode of speech was transmitted thought. Even now, they talked in their tombs. When, after infinite chaos as the first men came, the great old ones spoke of their sensitive of the sensitive among them by molding their dreams. For only thus could their language reach the fleshy minds of um, mammals. Then, whispered Castro, those first men formed the cult around the small items which the great old ones showed them. Idols brought in dim areas from dark skies, stars. That cult would never die till the stars came right again, and the secret priests would take Great Cthulhu from his tomb to revive his subjects to resume his rule of Earth. The time would be easy to know, for then mankind would have become as the great old ones, free and wild beyond good and evil, with laws and morals thrown aside, and all men shouting and killing and reveling in joy. Uh, 51 here, it says... Um, apparently this is from Beyond Good and Evil, an essay of intense interest to Lovecraft. Uh, from, uh, Nietzsche... Nietzsche... I fucking I recognize the name. I just forgot how to pronounce it. I think it was a philosophist from 1886. Anyway, Nietzsche. I don't know. Then the liberated old ones would teach them new ways to shout and kill and revel and enjoy themselves, and all the earth would flame with a holocaust of ecstasy and freedom. Meanwhile, the cult, by appropriate rights, must keep alive the memory of those ancient ways and shadow forth the prophecy of their return. In the elder times, chosen men had talked with the entombed old ones in dreams, but then something happened. The great stone city of Ryle, with its monoliths and sepulchres, had sunk beneath the waves in the deep waters, full of one's primal mystery, of uh, the one primal mystery through which not even thought can pass, had cut off the spectral intercourse. But memory never died, and high priests said that the city would rise again when the stars were right. It's a constant phrase of when the stars were right. Interesting. Um, I wonder when the stars will be right. Then I suppose they did say, like, what was it? Um, the time would be easy enough for mankind would have become as the great old ones, free and wild and beyond good and evil, when laws and morals thrown aside, and all men shouting and killing and reveling in joy. That's when the stars will be right. And then Cthulhu will rise again and conquer us all. In case you were wondering. Sounds like an apocalypse before the apocalypse. Um, where was I? They came out of the earth, the black spirits of. Uh, they came out of the earth, the black spirits of earth, moldy and shadowy and full of dim rumors picked up in caverns beneath forgotten sea bottoms. 
But of them, old Castro dared not speak much. He cut himself off hurriedly, and no amount of persuasion nor subtlety could elicit more in his direction. In this direction, the size of the old ones too, he curiously declined to mention. Of the cult, he said he thought the center lay amid the pathless deserts of Arabia, where Urim, the city of pillars, dreams and hidden um, dreams hidden and untouched. It was not allied to European witch cult, and was virtually unknown beyond its members. No book had ever really hinted of it, though the deathless. Um, individual from China, said that there were double meanings in the Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul Al-Harazd, which the initiated might read um, which might read as they choose, especially much discussed couplet. That which is that is not dead, which can eternally lie, and with strange eons even death may die. Ah, uh, the Necronomicon. Legrassi, deeply impressed and not a little bewildered, had inquired in vain concerning the historic art affiliations of the cult. Castro, apparently, had told the truth when he said it was wholly secret. The authorities at Tulane University could shed no light upon either cult nor image, and now the detective had come the highest authority in the country and met with no more than the Greenland tale of Professor Webb. The feverish interest aroused at the meeting by Legrassi's tale, corroborated as it was by the statuette, is echoed in the subsequent correspondence of those who attended, although scant mention occurs in the formal publications of the society. Caution is the first care for those accustomed to face occasional charlatan, uh, charlatan, charlatanry, whatever, to be a charlatan, with a Y at the end of it, an imposture. Lagrassi had for some time lent the image of Professor Webb, Lent the image to Professor Webb, but at the latter's death it was returned to him and remained in his possession, where I viewed it not long ago. It is a truly terrible thing and unmistakably akin to the dream sculpture of young Wilcox. Oh, this part's long. That my uncle was excited by the tale of the sculpture, I did not wonder for the thought, for what thought, must arise upon hearing after a knowledge of what Lagrassi had learned of the cult. Of a sensitive young man who had dreamed not only the figure of an exact hieroglyphics of the swamp found image in the Greenland Devil Tablet, but had come in his dreams upon at least three of the precise words of the formula uttered alike by Eskimo diabolists and mongrel Louisianians. Jesus. Mongrel. Uh, pff, mongrel. Professor. Angle instance, um, Professor Angle's instant start on an investigation of the utmost thoroughness was eminently natural, though I pri privately I suspect young Wilcox of having heard the cult in some indirect way, and of having invented a series of dreams to heighten and continue the mystery at my uncle's expense. The dream narratives and cuttings collected by Professor were, of course, strong corroboration, but the rationalism of my mind and the extravagance of the whole chapter led me to adopt what I thought the most sensible conclusions. So after thoroughly studying the manuscript again and correlating the theosophical and anthropological notes with the cult narrative of Legrassi, I made a trip to Providence to see the sculptor and give him the rebuke I thought proper for so boldly imposing upon a learned and aged man. Wilcox still lived alone in the Fleur-de-Lis building on Thomas Street, a hidden Victorian imitation of 17th century Breton architecture which flaunts its stuccoed front amidst the lovely colonial houses on the ancient hill and under the very shadow of the finest Georgian steeple in America. It's the first Baptist church of, of uh, fucking Providence. Yeah. I found him at work in his rooms and at once conceded from the specimens scattered uh, about that his genius is indeed profound and authentic. He will, I believe, sometime be heard as one of the great um, decadents, for he had crystallized in clay and will one day mirror in marble those nightmares and fantasies which Arthur Mackin evokes in prose 
and Clark Ashton Smith makes visible in verse and in painting. Dark, frail, and somewhat uncomfortable in aspect, he turned languidly at my knock and asked me my business without rising. When I told him who I was, he displayed some interest, for my uncle had excited curiosity in probing his strange dreams and it never explained the reason for the study. I did not enlarge his knowledge in this regard, but sought with some subtlety to draw him out. In short time, or in a short time, I became convinced of his absolute sincerity, for he spoke of the dreams in a manner none could mistake. They and their subconscious residuum had influenced his art profoundly, and he showed me a morbid statue whose contours almost made me shake with the potency of its black suggestion. He could not recall having seen the original of, of this thing except in his own dream bass relief, but the outlines had formed themselves insensibly under his hands. It was no doubt the giant shape he had raved of in delirium, that he really knew nothing of the hidden cults save for my uncle's relentless um, catchism had let fall, he soon made clear, and again I strove to think in some way he could have possibly have received the weird impressions. Besides it all being true and accurate, I guess. He talked of his dreams in a strangely poetic fashion, making me see with terrible vividness the damp cyclopean city of slimy green stone whose geometry, he always said, was all wrong, and here with fright, frightened expectancy the ceaseless half-mental callings of, from underground, Cthulhu for tagging, Cthulhu for tagging. The and these words had formed part of that dread ritual which told the dead Cthulhu dream vigil in his stone vault at Ryle, and I felt deeply moved despite my rational beliefs. Wilcox, I was sure, had heard of the cult in some casual way, and had soon forgotten it amidst the mass of his equally weird reading and imagining. Later, by virtue of its sheer impressiveness, I found subconscious expression in dreams, in, bas in the bas-relief, in the terrible statue I now beheld, and so, um, and so that his imposture upon my uncle had been a very innocent one. The youth was of a type, at once slightly affected and slightly ill-mannered, which I never liked, um, which I could never like. But I was willing enough now to admit both his genius and his honesty. I took leave of him amicably and wished him all the success in his talent, his talent promised. The matter of the cult still remained to fascinate me, and at times I had visions of personal fame, of research into its origins and connections. Visited New Orleans, talked with Lagrassi and others of that old-time raiding party, saw the frightful image, and even questioned such of the mongrel prisoners had still survived. Old Castor, unfortunately, had been dead for some years. But I now heard so graphically at first hand, uh, though it was really no more than detailed confirmation of what my uncle had written. Excited me afresh, for I felt sure that I was on the track of a very real, very, uh, very secret and very ancient religion, whose discovery would make me an anthropologist of note. My attitude was still one of absolute materialism, as I wish it still were, and I discounted uh, with almost inexplicable perversity the coincidence of the dream notes and the odd cuttings collected by Professor Engel. One thing I began to suspect, and which I now fear I know, is that my uncle's death was far from natural. He fell on a narrow hill street leading up from an ancient waterway, waterfront swarming with foreign individuals uh, after a careless push from a sailor. I did not forget the Jesus, the disposition, and marine pursuits of the cult members in Louisiana and would not be surprised to learn of secret methods and poison needles as ruthless and anciently known as the cryptic rites and beliefs. Legrassi and his men, it is true, had been left alone, but in Norway a certain seaman who saw things is dead. Okay. Um, see part three. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So I'm like, who the fuck is he talking? Anyway. Might not the deeper inquiries of my uncle after encountering the sculptor's data have come to sinister ears? I think Professor Engel died because he knew too much, or because he was likely to learn too much. Whether I shall go as he did remains to be seen, for I have learned much now. Interesting. This book is fucking heavy. 
Oh man, there's one more part of this tale to be told. Mm. Gonna do something we haven't done in a while, and that's talk about a new album that dropped. I know we talked about Arion, and Arion got like a B, you know, but fucking Ninja Sex Party coming out rocking with what's probably gonna be my album of the year, unless something unbelievable drops later, which I'm, I'm not aware of at this moment in time. Anyway, The Prophecy, this is Ninja Sex Party's fifth original album and eighth overall. They've had three cover albums, uh, and this is one of those bands, like, Fucking sorry, I just took a shower and I'm out of breath. There's a lot of vigorous scrubbing of my scalp. Anyway, um, <laughs> this album or this band rather does seem to just kind of get better and better with each of their albums over over the course of their history. You've got a uh, uh, Not Safe for Work was the first album. Strawberries and Cream was the second. Attitude City was the third. Cool Patrol was their fourth. And now we've got The Prophecy, which is the fifth. And in my opinion best album once uh tupperware remix party twrp joined up to provide like the the instrumental backing i really felt like they kind of stepped it up a notch and cool patrol was really the first album uh we got i believe i think under the covers may have may have preceded cool patrol but i'm not 100 um but pretty early you know they've been working with tupperware remix party for a while now especially for all the un under the cover albums they worked with them but this is the second original album that had them, and I really think their their presence uh, is is shown to be incredibly useful in uh, in their their music. And for me, the prophecy. I mean, I'm just gonna rattle down the songs, and we're just gonna talk about them real quick. So it, it kicks off with the Mystic Crystal, which is this 12 minute long, just epic of of like B fantasy movie proportions. Uh, could could be used for a D&D campaign. Indeed, I have used this song as a one-shot in Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, it can be done. And it's it's gorgeous. It, it flows through these acts, and it has this incredible story and a really nice message at the end of it. And it's, it's fucking phenomenal. It was actually the first single they dropped for the album, which is a, a ballsy move to drop a 12-minute song as the first single. Uh, but they did. And then that's immediately followed up by It's Bedtime, which was not released as a single. Um, ahead of time and that fucking song kicks all the ass it's amazing I fucking love it it, it starts off like it's a lullaby and then they just come tearing in with like it's bad time it's fucking bad time it's fucking oh it's so good I'm a big fan of that then there's a couple of skits first skit is the wishing bear which is great they get mauled by a bear um, I don't know what we're talking about and I haven't for a while it's pretty self-explanatory in the title but that's a great song also released as a single Welcome to my parents' house. <laughs> Which I, I very much enjoyed that one too. It's kind of like a 70s disco groovy number. Um, and that one's really fun. Wondering Tonight is the slow romantic ballad. Which came out as a single I believe last week. And I've been listening to it basically on loop every fucking day since. Um, it's probably going to be like my most listened to song of the year. I don't know. It's Bedtime is really fucking good though. Um, Wondering Tonight is is gorgeous. And um, all of these songs, in my opinion, do the do the Tenacious D effect. They're funny when you listen to it the first couple of times. But once the funny wears off, they're just legitimately good songs. And they're really funny. Or not they're really funny. They're just really good. And Wondering Tonight um, is one of those songs for me. Because 
the the funny for me never really landed. It's just it's always just like this kind of emotional uh, song to it, and I, I very much enjoyed that. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I love the Under the Cover album so much because when they're not trying to be funny, they're just also a really good fucking band, and Danny can really sing and sing well. And this album really showcases that. He goes all over the place vocally, uh, and it's it's really fun to see, and he, it shows like growth and all this stuff. And I, I'm a really big fan of it. Uh, then there's another skit for Ninja Brian's kid album, because uh, Ninja Brian does have a, a side project where he writes children's music. I don't remember what it's called, but he does do that. Uh, the Decision Part 2, 10 years later, is a wonderful nod to all of the fans uh, who have been with them for 10 years, and I, I very much enjoy that. Do Math With You is a is a great fucking song as well. <laughs> uh, all about boning down between two mathematicians. And then uh, Thunder and Lightning, when you get your uh, the power of Thor imbued into your testicles. Uh, it's, it's truly a, a great album. It's, it's very consumable. It's only 38 in like 36 seconds long. Um, so you can listen to it pretty quickly. Uh, especially when you consider that like a fucking fourth of this album is, uh, one song, the Mr. Crystal. Um, it's really well put together. And I like the worst thing I could say about it is I wish it was longer, but at the same time, I'm like, if it was, then those extra songs might not be as good as these songs. And I feel like they have a really good group of songs here. I think they've made a really solid album instrumentally. It sounds really good. The, the themes of the songs, like what each song is about is really solid and pretty universal. Uh, like spacing out in a conversation, uh, bringing the chick over to your parents' house. Wondering where, like, your ex is and what they're up to. Um, having sex with a mathematician. I guess that one's not it's so universal. Um, going on a journey to save a princess from a magic crystals. Thor balls. Most of it's pretty universal. Um, and I very much enjoyed it. And I'd recommend it. If you, if you haven't listened to Ninja Sex Party before, um... I almost say don't start with this album because it's like, I feel like this is some of the best work they've ever done and everything else before it will kind of seem lackluster in comparison. Um, so I would just start at the beginning and work your way forward and just watch as this band gets better and better and better and continues to produce amazing music. And um, I, I'm uh, saddened by, the, well, I guess Cool Patrol did come out in 2018. Um, and that album did have some weak songs on it and that was... I was actually that album was shorter than Prophecy. Hmm, weird. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's really it's really solid, and I can't wait to hear uh, their next album. That's always the bummer, and it like they dropped a new album, and they're like, "Cool, we did it. We're done. We could take a break." And then all the fans go, "I want more," and they're like, "Fuck, we just made this one though. Can't we like can we ride this high for a little bit?" Traditionally, it'd be like you know there'd be a tour uh, to support the album, but we can't do that now with COVID. So people are just like clamoring for more music. Just more consumable media. It's never enough. You can never fill that hole. So, listen to the prophecy. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Part three: The Madness from Sea. I should probably, I should pick up my book again, huh? Before I just start blindly reading. Urgh, Jesus. If heaven ever wishes to grant me a boon, it will be a total effacing of the results of a mere chance which fixed my eye upon a certain stray piece of shelf paper. It was nothing on which I would naturally have stumbled in the course of my daily round, for it was an old number of an Australian journal, the Sydney Bulletin, from April 18, 1925. 
It had escaped even the cutting bureau, which had at the time of its issuance been um, avidly collecting material for my uncle's research. I had largely given over my inquiries into what Professor Engel called the Cthulhu cult and was visiting a learned friend in Patterson, New Jersey, the curator of a local museum and meteorologist of note, examining one day the reserve specimens roughly set on the storage shelves in the rear room of the museum. My eye caught, uh, was caught by an odd picture in one of the old papers spread beneath the stones. It was the Sydney Bulletin I have mentioned, for my friend had a wide affiliation in all conceivable foreign parts, and the picture was a half-tone cut of a hideous stone image almost identical with that which Lagrassi had found in the swamp. Eagerly clearing the sheet with, of its precious contents, I scanned the item in detail and was disappointed only to, uh, to find uh, it only moderate length. What I suggested, however, was of portentous significance to my flagging quest. I carefully tore it out uh, for immediate action. It read as follows. There's a picture here. The alert is intact. Interesting. It's a boat just sailing into what appears to be just a mouth of tentacles and horrible garbage. Mystery derelict found at sea. Vigilante arrives with helpless armed New Zealand yacht in tow. One survivor and one dead man found aboard. Tale of desperate battle and deaths at sea. Rescued seaman refuses particulars of strange experience. Odd idol found in his possession. Inquiry to follow. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. The Morrison Co. Freighter Vigilant, bound for Ver Verparacio, arrived this morning at its wharf in Darling Arbor. Um, having in tow the battle and disabled but heavily armed steam yacht Alert of Dundin, New Zealand, which was sighted April 12th at south latitude 34 degrees 21 feet, west longitude 150 degrees 17 feet, with one living and one dead man aboard. Now, Lovecraft, you're, you're doing okay, but the second you start giving me latitude and longitude, I'm going to start calling you Jules Verne and I'm going to kick your ass. The vigilante left Valparaiso. Paralazio, March 25th and on April 2nd, was driven considerably south of her course by exceptionally heavy storms and monster waves. On April 12th, the derelict was sighted and, though apparently deserted, was found upon boarding to contain one survivor in half-delirious condition and one man who had evidently been dead for more than a week. The living man was clutching a horrible stone idol of unknown origin, about a foot in height, regarding those uh, regarding whose natural or nature authorities at Sydney University, the Royal Society, and the museum in College Street all professed complete bafflement, and which the survivor said he found in the cabin of the yacht in a small carved shrine of common pattern. This man, after recovering his senses, told an exceedingly strange story of piracy and slaughter. He is Gustav Johansson, a Norwegian of some intelligence, and had been second mate to the two-masted schooner Emma of Auckland, which sailed for Kayo. February 12th, with a complement of 11 men. The Emma, he said, was delayed and thrown wildly south of her course by a great storm of March 1st and on March 22nd. In sat latitudes, whatever, uh, encountered the alert, manned by a queer and evil-looking crew of, um, uh, people, uh, Jesus. Yeah. Uh, evil-looking crew of people from Hawaii and half-castes. Jesus. Being, <laughs> I'm sorry, like, I read it and then I realize what I just read and it's terrible. Being ordered peremptorily, peremptorily. Okay, to turn back, Captain Collins refused. Whereupon the strange crew began to fire savagely and without warning upon the schooner with a peculiar heavy battery of brass cannons, forming part of the yacht's equipment. The Emma's men sh uh, showed fight, says the survivor, and though the schooner began to sink from shots beneath the waterline, they managed to heave alongside their enemy in a border, grappling with the crew on the yacht's deck, being forced to kill them all. The number being slightly superior because of their particularly abhorrent and desperate, um, though rather clumsy, mode of fighting. 
Three of the Emma's men, including Captain Collins, first mate Green, were killed, and the remaining eight under a second mate Johansson proceeded to navigate the captured yacht going ahead of their original de- uh, direction to see if any reason for their ordering back had existed. The next day, it appears they raised and landed on a small island, although none is known to exist in that part of the ocean, and six of the men somehow died ashore, though Johansson is queerly uh, reticent about this part of the story and speaks only of their falling into a rock chasm. Later, they were probably eaten by something. Later, it seems he and one companion boarded the yacht and tried to manage her, but were beaten about by a storm of April 2nd. From that uh, time till his rescue on the 12th, the man remembers little, and he doesn't even recall when William Bryden and his companion died. Bryden's death reveals no apparent cause and was probably due to excitement or exposure. Cable advices uh, from Dundon report that the alert was well known in um, there as an island trader and bore an evil reputation along the waterfront. It was owned by a curious group of individuals who were fr- uh, frequently met and um, who frequently... Ah. Sorry, it's a lot of reading today. I'm stumbling all over my words as this heavy book is breaking my spirit. Curious group of individuals whose frequent meetings and night trips to the woods attracted no little curiosity, and it had set sail in great haste just after the storm and earth tremors of March 1st. Our Auckland correspondent gives the Emma and her crew an excellent reputation, and Johansson is described as a sober and worthy man. The Admiralty will institute an inquiry on the whole matter beginning tomorrow, at which every effort would, has been made to induce Johansson to speak more freely, as he has done hitherto. This was... That's the end of the piece. This was all together with the picture of the hellish image. Uh, but what a train of ideas it started in my mind. Here were the new treasuries of data on the Cthulhu cult, and evidence that it had strange interests at sea as well as on land. What motive prompted the hybrid crew, Jesus, uh, crew to order back the Emma as they sailed about with their hideous idol? What was the unknown island on which six of the Emma's crew had died, and about which the mate Johansson was so secretive? Um, the, the book here then wonders if this is the same island that is described in Dagon. Um... I mean, I, I don't think so. It even says in the same comment, uh, Dagon was in San Francisco, not Sydney. I mean, Dagon was supposedly was like the... It's like a... I'm sure it can move. Of course it can move. Why couldn't it move? What had the Vice Admiralty's investigation brought out, and what was known of the noxious cult in Dundon? And most marvelous of all, what deep and more than natural linkage of dates uh, was this which gave a malign and now undeniable significance to the various turn of events so carefully noted by my uncle. March 1st, our February 28th, according to the International Dateline, the earthquake and storm had come. From Dundin, the alert and her uh, noisome crew had darted forth eagerly, as if imperiously summoned, and on the other side of the earth, poets and artists began to dream of a strange, dank, cyclopean city, whilst the young sculptor had molded in his sleep the form of the dreaded Cthulhu. March 23rd. Ah, oh, there's a typo in this book. That's fine. It just says March 23rd. There's no R. There's a typo. That's fine. The crew of the Emma Island, uh, or the, the crew of the Emma landed on an unknown island and left six men dead. And on that day, the dreams of the sensitive men assumed a heightened vividness and darkened with a dread of a giant monster's malign pursuit, whilst an architect had gone mad and a sculptor had laughed suddenly into delirium. And what of the storm of April 2nd, the day on which all the dreams of the dank city ceased and Wilcox emerged unharmed from his bondage of strange fever? What of all this, and of those hints of old Castro about the sunken star-born old ones, and their coming reign, and their faithful cult, and their mastery of dreams? Was I tottering on the brink of cosmic horrors beyond man's power to bear? Yes. If so, they must be horrors of the mind alone, for in some way the 2nd of April had put a stop to whatever monstrous uh, menace had begun to siege mankind's soul. 
Interesting. That evening, after a day of hurried cabling and arranging, I bade my host to do and took for his train of San Francisco. Less than a month, I was in Dundon, where, however, um, I found that little was known of the strange cult members who had lingered in old sea taverns. Waterfront scum was far too common for a special mention, though there were vague talk about one island trip uh, these individuals had made, during which faint drumming and red flame was noted on distant hills. In Auckland, I learned that Johansson had returned with yellow hair turned white after a perfunctory and inconclusive questioning at Sydney, and had thereafter sold his cottage in West Street and sailed with his wife to his old home in Oslo. Of his stirring experience, he would tell his friends no more than he told the uh, Admiralty officials, and all they could do was to give me his Oslo address. After that, I went to Sydney and talked profitably, uh, profitlessly with the seamen and members of the Vice Admiralty Court. I saw the alert, now sold in, in commercial use at Circular Quay in Sydney Cove, but gained nothing from its non-committal bulk. The crouching image with its cuttlefish head, dragon body, scaly wings, and hieroglyphic, hieroglyphed pedestal was preserved in the museum at Hyde Park. And I studied it long and well, finding it a thing of baleful, exquisite workmanship. And with the same utter mystery, terrible antiquity, and unearthly strangeness of material which I had noted the Lagrassi smaller specimen, geologist security told me, had found it a monstrous puzzle, for they vowed that the world held no rock like it. Then I thought with a shudder of what old Castro had told Lagrassi about the primal great ones. They had come from the stars, and they had brought their image with them. Shaken with such a mental revolution as I had never before known, I now resolved to visit Mate Johansson in Oslo. Sailing from London, I embarked at once to the Norwegian capital, and one autumn day landed at a, the Trim Wharves in the shadow of the Eggberg. Johansson's address I discovered lay in the old town of King Harald Haradrada, sure, uh, which kept alive the name of Oslo during all the centuries that made the greater city masqueraded as Christiania. I made the brief trip by taxi cab and knocked with palpable heart at the door of the neat and ancient building with a plaster front. A sad-faced woman in black answered my summons and I was stung with disappointment when she told me in halting English that Gustav Johansson was no more. He had not survived his return and his wife for the doings at sea in 1925 had broken him. Uh, he had told her no more than he had told the public, but he had left a long manuscript of technical matters as he had, uh, as he said, written in English, evidently in order to safeguard her from the peril of casual perusal. During a walk through a narrow lane in the Gothenburg dock, a bundle of papers falling from an attic window had knocked him down. Two last car sailors had once, at once helped him to his feet before the ambulance could reach him. He was dead. Physicians found no adequate cause for the end and laid it to heart trouble and a weakened constitution. I now felt gnawing at my vitals that a dark terror, that dark terror which will never leave me till I too am at rest, accidentally or otherwise. Persuading the widow that my connection with her husband's technical matters was sufficient to entitle me to his manuscript i bore the document away and began to read it in a london boat it was a simple rambling thing a native a naive sailor's effort at post facto diary and strove to recall day by day that last awful voyage i cannot attempt to transcribe it verbatim in all its cloudiness and redundancy but i will tell it's just enough to show why the sound of the water against the vessel's side became so undurable to me that i stopped my that i stopped my ear with cotton he wants and thank god did not know quite all, and even though he saw the city and the thing, I shall never sleep calmly again when I think of the horrors that lurk uh, ceaselessly beneath, behind life and time and in space. I'm going to read this paragraph again because we're finally getting to the good stuff. Johansson, thank God, did not know quite all, even though he saw the city and the thing, but I shall never sleep calmly again when I think of the horrors that lurk ceaselessly behind life in time and in space, and of those unhallowed blasphemies from elder stars which dream beneath the sea known and favored by a nightmare cult ready and eager to loose them on the world whenever another earthquake shall heave their monstrous stone city again to the sun and air 
Johansson's voyage had begun just as he told it to the Vice Admiralty. The Emma, um, the Emma in ballast, had cleared Auckland on February 20th and had felt the full force of that earthquake-borne tempest, which must have heaved up from the sea bottom the horrors that filled men's dreams. Once more under control, the ship was making good progress. When held up by the alert on March 2nd, I could feel the mate's regret as he wrote her bombardment and sinking. Of the swarthy cult, uh, swarthy cult fiends on the alert, he speaks of significant horror. There was some peculiar, peculiar abominable quality about them which made their destruction seem almost a duty. And Johansson shows ingenious wonder at the charges, a charge of ruthlessness brought against his party during the proceedings of the Court of Inquiry. Then... Driven ahead by curiosity in their captured yacht under Johansson's command, the men sighted a great stone pillar sticking out of the sea, and it gives the exact uh, latitude and longitude. Uh, it is about 1,700 miles southeast of the shipwreck and 1,500 miles north of the nearest inhabited island. Interesting. Come up from a come upon a coastline of mingled mud, ooze, and weedy cyclopean masonry, which can be nothing less than the tangible substance of the Earth's supreme terror. The nightmare corpse city of Ryle that was built in measureless eons before the dawn, before history, by the vast, loathsome shapes that seeped down from the dark stars. There lay the great Cthulhu and his hordes, hidden in green, slimy vaults, and sending out at last, after cycles incalculable, and the thoughts and s that spread fear and dreams of the sensitive, and called imperiously to the faithful to come on a pilgrimage of liberation and restoration. All this Johansson did not suspect, but God knows he soon saw enough. I suppose that only a single mountaintop, the hideous monolith-crowned citadel whereupon, whereon Great Cthulhu was buried, actually emerged from the waters. When I think of the extent of all that may be brooding down there, I almost wish to kill myself forthwith. Johansson and his men were awed by the cosmic majesty of this dripping Babylon of elder demons, and must have guessed without guidance that it was nothing of this or of any sane planet. Ah, the unbelievable size of the greenish stone blocks and the dizzying height of the great carven monolith and the stupefying identity of the colossal statues in bas-relief with the queer image found in the shrine on the alert is poignantly invisible in every line of the mate's frightened description. Without knowing what futurism is like, Johansson achieved something very close to it when he spoke of the city, for instead of describing any definite structure or buildings, he dwells only on the broad impressions of vast angles and stone surfaces, surfaces too great to belong to anything right or proper of this earth, and impious uh, with horror ima horrible images and hieroglyphs. I mentioned his talk about angels because, or angles, yeah, because it suggests something Wilcox told me of his awful dreams. He said that um, the geometry of the dream place, he said, was abnormal, non-Euclidean, and loathsomely redolent of spheres and dimensions apart from our own. Now an unlettered seaman felt the same thing while gazing at this terrible reality. Johansson and his men landed at a sloping mud bank on this monstrous acropolis and clambered slipperily over titan oozy blocks which could have been no mortal staircase. The very sun of heaven seemed distorted when viewed through the polarizing miasma welling out from the sea-soaked perversion, and twisted menace and suspense lurked leeringly in the, those crazily elusive angles of car carven rock, where a second glance showed concavity at first showed convexity. Nice, it's got the cosmic thing and the multiple interdimensional plane thing going on. Fucking love it. Something very like fright had come over all of the explorers before anything more definite than rock and ooze and weed was seen. Each would have fled had he not feared the scorn of the others, and it was only half-heartedly that they searched vainly as it proved for some portable souvenir to bear away. 
It was Rodriguez, the Portuguese, who had climbed the foot of the monolith and shouted of what he had found. The rest followed him and looked curiously at the immense carved door with the now familiar squid dragon bas relief. It was Johansson, uh, it was Johansson said, like a great barn door. And they all felt that it was a door because of the ornate lintel threshold and jams around it. Though they could not decide whether it lay flat like a trapdoor or slantwise like an outside cellar door. As Willcox would have said, the geometry of the place was all wrong. One could not be sure that the sea and the ground were horizontal, hence the relative position of everything else seemed phantasmally variable. That's really well done. Brandon pushed at the stone in several places without result. The Donovan felt over it delicately around the edge, pressing each point separately as he went. He climbed interminably along the grotesque stone molding. That is, one could call it climbing if the thing was not, after all, horizontal. The men wondered how any door in the universe could be so vast. Then, very softly and slowly, the acre-great panel began to give inward at the top, and they saw that it was balanced. Donovan slid, somehow propelled himself down along the jam and rejoined his fellows, and everyone watched the queer uh, recession of the monstrously carved portal. In this fantasy of prismatic distortion, it moved anonymously in a diagonal way so that all the rules of matter and perspective seemed upset. The aperture was black with the darkness almost material. The tenebrousness was indeed a positive quality, for it obscured such parts of the inner walls as ought to have been revealed, and actually burst forth like smoke from its eons long imprisonment, visibly darkening the sun as it slunk away into shrunken and gibbous skies on flapping membrous wings. The odor rising from the newly opened depths was intolerable, and at length the quick-eared Hawkins, though heard uh, thought he heard a nasty slopping sound down there. Everyone listened, and everyone was listening still when it lumbered slobberingly into his light and gropingly squeezed its gelatinous green immensity through the black doorway into the tainted outside air of the poison city of madness. Poor Johansson's handwriting almost gave out when he wrote of this thing. The six men who never reached the ship. He thinks two perished a pure fright in that accursed instant. The thing cannot be described. There is no language for such abysms of shrieking immemorial lunacy and such eldritch contradictions of all matter force and cosmic order. A mountain walked or stumbled. God. What wondered that across the earth a great architect went mad and poor Wilcox raved with fever in that telepathic instant. The thing of the idols, the green, sticky spawn of the stars, had awakened to claim his own. The stars were right again. And what an age-old cult had failed to do by design, a band of innocent sailors had done by accident. After vintillions of years, Jesus, a really, really, really big number, according to my notes, a one followed by 63 zeros. After vintillions of years, Great Cthulhu was loose again and ravening for delight. Three men were swept up by the flabby claws before anyone turned. God rest them, if there be any rest in the universe. They were Donovan, uh, Guerra, and Engstrom. Parker slipped as the other three were plunging frenziedly over endless vistas of green-crusted rock to the boat. Johansson swears he was swallowed up by the angle of masonry which shouldn't have been there, and an angle which was acute but behaved as if it were obtuse. So only Bryden and Johansson reached the boat and pulled desperately for the alert as the monstrous monstrosity flopped down the slimy stones and hesitated, floundering at the edge of the water. Steam had not been suffered to go down entirely, um, despite the departure of all hands uh, for the shore, and it was the work of only a few moments of feverish running up and down between wheel and engines to get the alert underway. Slowly, amidst the distorted horrors of that indescribable scene, she began to churn in the lethal waters, whilst on the masonry of that channel shore uh, that was not of earth, the titan thing from the stars slabbered and gibbered like a polypheme cursing this fleeing ship of Odysseus. 
Then bolder than the storage Cyclops, the great Cthulhu slid greasily into the water and began to pursue with vast wave-raising strokes of cosmic potency. Brandon looked back and went mad, laughing shrilly as he kept on laughing at intervals till death found him in one night in the cabin while Johansson was wandering deliriously. But Johansson had not given out yet. Knowing that the thing could surely overtake the alert until steam was fully up, he resolved on a desperate chance and setting the engine for full speed ran lightning-like on deck and reversed the wheel. There was a mighty eddying and foaming of the noise, noisome brine, and steam mounted higher and higher. The brave Norwegian drove his vessel head-on against the pursuing jelly, which rose above the unclean froth like the stern of a demon galleon. The awful squid head with writhing feelers came nearly upon the bowsprit of the sturdy yacht, but Johansson drove it on relentlessly. There was a bursting as of an exploding bladder, slushy nastiness, as of a cloven sunfish, a stench, as of a thousand open graves, and of a sound that the chronicler would not put on paper. For an instant, the ship was befouled by an acrid and blinding green cloud, and then there was only a venomous, seething astern where, God in heaven, the scattered and plasticity of the nameless sky spawn was nebulously recombining in its hateful original form, whilst its distance widened every second as the alert gained impetuously uh, impetus from its mounting steam. So I'm guessing the boat drove through Cthulhu and, like, split it, and then Cthulhu started to reform as the boat sailed on. Which is fucking... Sounds about right. That was all. After that, Johansson only brooded over the idol in the cabin and attended to a few matters of food for himself and the laughing maniac by his side. He did not try to navigate after the first bold flight, for the reaction had taken something out of his soul. Then came the storm of April 2nd and the gathering of the clouds about his consciousness. There is a sense of spectral whirling through liquid gulfs of infinity of dizzying rides through reeling universes on a comet's tail, and of hysterical plunges from the pit to the moon, and from the moon back again to the pit, all livened by a chenadening chorus of the distorted, hilarious elder gods and the green, bat-winged, mocking imps of Tartarus. Out of that dream came rescue, the vigilant, the vice admiralty court, the streets of Dunda, and the long voyage back home to the old house by Egberg. He could not tell. They would think him mad. He would write what he knew before death came, but his wife must not guess. Death would be a boon, if only it could blot out the memories. That was the document I read, and now I have placed it in a tin box beside the bass release and the papers of Professor Engel. With it shall go this record of mine, this test of my own sanity, wherein it pieced together that which I hoped never may be pieced together again. I have looked upon all that the universe has to hold of horror, and even the skies of spring and the flowers of summer must ever afterward be poison to me. But I do not think my life will be long. As my uncle went, as poor Johansson went, so shall I go. I know too much, and the cult still lives. Cthulhu still lives too, I suppose. Again, in that chasm of stone which has shielded him since the sun was young. His accursed city is sunken once more, for the vigilant sailed over the spot after the April storms, but his ministers on earth still bellow and prance and slay around idle-capped monoliths in lonely places. He must have been trapped by the sinking whilst within his black abyss. Or else the world would now be screaming with fright and frenzy. Who knows the end? What has risen may sink, and what has sunk may rise. Loathsomeness waits in dreams in the deep, and decay spreads over the tottering cities of men. A time will come, but I must not and cannot think. Let me pray that, if I do not survive this manuscript, my executors may put caution before audacity, and see that it meets no other eye. And that is Call of Cthulhu! Whew! My hands are fucking dead from holding up this massive book for about an hour. Jesus. That was really good. 
I've read a lot of books, a lot of books, um, recently for audiobooks for my own purposes, and that's that's one of the one of the finest pieces of of literary horror I've read easily this month. Like that was just excellent. The writing quality was way way better than all these shitty short stories I've been reading. Oh man, what a journey. So, we are getting ready for the brand new World of Warcraft expansion coming out here eventually. I mean, it was supposed to come out here, oh, oh, like, soon, but then they pushed it back. Because, you know, COVID kind of threw a wrench into everybody's plans. And, uh, hey, you know what? I get that. I get that wholeheartedly. Um, but, the pre-patch for Shadowlands has landed. And I got to play pretty much every part of it, really. I, I, I redid my, my main... Uh, with all the new character, like, look options, which are extensive. Uh, making a new character has all these fun new animations to show you kind of like the classes about, which I really loved. And then I made a new character and went all the way through Exile's Reach, which is the new tutorial zone uh, for incoming players. Or you could play the original uh, tutorial zone that came out with, like, WoW way long ago. I enjoyed um, Exile's Reach. Um, it introduced classes where it was like... You unlock abilities by doing certain things. At least you did when I leveled up a druid. Um, I thought I thought that was all really well done. I liked the little story it told. And then it launches you off into uh, the capital city of whichever faction you're a part of. And you are basically then punted straight into Battle for Azeroth. Which is the most recent expansion. Or you can go find Chromie. Who will let you pick one of the... One of six other options classic and Deathwing have been kind of melded together and then you've got uh burning crusades wrath of lich king's mist of pandaria legion and draenor are the are the other options um for my druid i went with legion because i wanted to collect the um artifact weapon skins uh even though the artifact weapons are not Really, you can't... They're not artifact weapons anymore. The second you get it, it goes like this weapon's been sacrificed to, um... Protect Azeroth. Which is such a huge bummer. Because my favorite part of Legion was the was the class halls and the leveling up of the weapon and having this, this incredibly powerful weapon. And even in replaying Legion with the Shadowlands, like, choice, you can't do that. And that's like... That was my favorite bit. And now it's just... Now it's just gone forever um and i'm just like fuck that was the coolest but that was the coolest part and that mechanic is just dead and that's a huge fucking bummer for me um but i enjoy the quality of life improvements they've added like that little gold diamond that shows you where you're going on whatever quest you're doing i thought that was really cool i don't know over the course of the pre-patch we'll get things like zombie invasions running into the capital cities basically and that'll be that'll be fun to to kind of get into um i'm just i'm just eager to kind of get going um, I really loved Legion, but after completing the main storyline of Battle for Azeroth and doing all the raids and all that stuff, I've been doing a lot of time with achievements and, uh, that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm hoping that with Shadowlands, this will be the first time I actually do, maybe not all of the achievements, but like, that's gonna kind of be my goal. I'm gonna do the main story quest, I'm gonna get the gear that I want, I'm gonna join the faction I want, do all the exploration and stuff like that, and then I'm gonna start playing the achievement game. Um, and I think that'll be... That'll be fun. It, it, it provides that, like, goal that keeps the game interesting for me, at least. 
um, yeah, it'll be it'll be very exciting, and I can't wait for it to come out. And I wanted to talk about WoW because I didn't think this episode was long enough. So <laughs> there you go. Let's move on to the next thing of the podcast. Thank you all very much for listening to this incredibly long episode of the Going Up Cast with Call of Cthulhu, among other things. I hope you enjoyed the story as much as I did. I thought it was truly incredible. Um, even though my throat is now shot and I'm exhausted because I read all of that in basically one sitting. Oh, man. Oh, I hope you all have a wonderful week and I will see you on the other side. Have a good one, everyone. Have a good one, everyone.